Border Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. In September, shots were fired in Ladakh, the high-altitude border region between China and India, for the first time in decades. It's certainly not the first violence in the region. Even a 1990s agreement to remove guns and explosives from the border wasn't enough to prevent the deaths of 20 Indian soldiers at the border in June. Instead, they were reportedly bludgeoned to death. But the use of firearms in the region in recent weeks marks a new phase of heightened tensions. More broadly, we're seeing increased tensions between China and India, as well as between China and others of its regional neighbours. The move raises key questions of what is China seeking from its neighbours, and more broadly, what is China's regional security strategy? So joining me today to discuss Chinese strategy and the ongoing tensions between China and India is Taylor Fravel. Taylor is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Security Studies Program at MIT. His work focuses on military strategy and on East Asia. Taylor, welcome to Power Problems. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so can we start with the disputes on the the China-India border? Can you give Mm -hmm. us a little overview of what's happening? Because it seems like every time I sort of read an article about this, it is full of so many details that it's hard to actually get a picture of what's going on for people that don't know that area well. Sure, yeah. No, it... um... It's actually quite a complicated dispute with a long history, as you sort of hinted at in the introduction. So let me just make a a couple of points here, and I'm going to start from sort of the widest possible angle and then zoom in. And unfortunately, because this is a podcast, uh, I can't show you maps. That would make it easier. Um, But just sort of, uh, I I think you'll be able to follow along um, as I sort of try to delineate uh, the nature of the disputes. So the very largest level, or the most macro level, it's important to start with the recognition, right, that India and China dispute approximately 125,000 kilometers of territory. So this is where they have overlapping sovereignty claims. Starting in the east, you have uh, what's known as the eastern sector of this dispute, also described as the state of Arunachal Pradesh, more or less. China's claims more or less overlap here with the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, again, it's 90,000 square kilometers in size, and, and this territory is almost entirely under India's control and has been uh, for quite some time. Uh, then you have sort of the central or middle sector. This is roughly, say, 2,000 square kilometers in size. Uh, control here is kind of divided evenly uh, between uh, India and China. And then you have the western sector, which has been the focus of where acts have been happening lately. And this is about 33,000 square kilometers in size. And uh, it's almost entirely under China's control. So um, basically, you have one large chunk of territory to the east that's under Indian control and another large chunk of territory to the west that's under uh, Chinese control. Uh, From the Indian point of view, the western sector is even bigger because India includes territory uh, that was um, given to China in a 1963 sort of temporary boundary agreement between China and Pakistan. But for our purposes let's just call it 33,000 square kilometers. And here, uh, there is no agreed upon border. There's something called the line of actual control, in fact, in all all three sectors. And this has sort of emerged uh, over time uh, based loosely on kind of a military separation line from the 1962 war, and then sort of more or less where, where each side had kind of de facto control. And what we, what you know, where we are today is basically the fact that the, the Western sector has become uh, much more uh, tense and volatile. Now, this started in sort of late April to early May. China 
uh, from its point of view, moved up to the line of control in three or four areas in the Western sector, and from India's point of view, moved over the line of actual control. Uh, because uh, here, uh, uh, and especially in the Western sector, the two sides don't necessarily view the line of control as lying in the same place. There is, there are, I think, as now as many as 25 areas where the two sides actually don't view the line of actual control as being, uh, being in the exact same place. And so... Um, one key hotspot was known as Pangong Lake, which we'll talk more about in just a minute. Uh, then you had uh, what's known as Gorga and Hot Springs, which are two areas quite close to each other. Then you had the Galwan Valley, which is where uh, there was a deadly clash on the evening of June 15th. And then finally, you have a variety of positions where uh, China and India have been sort of deploying forces and perhaps across the line of actual control uh, known as Depsong. And even within Depson, there may, there's basically the Plains area and then the bottleneck or Y junction. I realize that's a mouthful um, uh, to, to get us started. But basically, a- after the deadly clash on the evening of June 15th, there, there was an initial move by both sides to dis- disengage. It sort of stalled over the summer. And at the end of August, uh, sort of the 29th to the 31st, roughly, India uh, moved forces into... Um, as many as perhaps six locations uh, on the north and the south side of Pangong Lake. Uh, sort of the, the Indian uh, sort of official view is that they were preempting a Chinese move. It's not entirely clear what the Chinese move was since it was preempted, but there was certainly an increase of Chinese forces in this area. And what India basically did was to occupy sort of the high ground. Um, overlooking a variety of uh, Chinese positions. And so it sort of upped the ante, uh, so to speak, and in many ways was uh, doing to China what India believed China had done to it in uh, earlier in the summer. But now the situation is quite tense. Uh, news reports suggest that there may be as many as 50,000 uh, soldiers deployed from each side, either on the line of actual control or in close proximity to the line of actual control, such that they could be used in a military conflict. And in many of these positions now, uh, in sort of north and south of Pangong Lake, you know, there are reports that in some cases, uh, forces are only a couple hundred meters apart. And of course, warning shots have been fired repeatedly within the past week in this area too. So it, it, it's exceptionally uh, tense uh, and volatile. And so the proximate causes of conflict are these very specific areas and currently Pangong Lake, uh, in the Western sector, but the dispute itself is much broader uh, and really comprises, uh, I think it makes it one of the world's largest territorial disputes today. Yeah, so um, hold on to that thought actually, because in a minute I wanna ask you to zoom back out to that question of, of why this is happening on a, on a sort of bigger level. Um, but I did also want to ask, so my understanding is that this area is um, very sort of high up in the mountains, not particularly passable in many cases, um, that especially come winter, this is not a place where you're going to see any kind of large scale fighting. So um, I guess one question is the extent to which this could actually devolve into fighting, you know, in that location in which it could spread, it, it seems like it would have to remain relatively small if it remained localized. Uh, great question. So um, many of these areas are are at altitude. Some of these mountain peaks, I want to say, are 18, 19, maybe even 20,000 feet tall, right? That's, that is high. Uh, I once myself hiked in uh, Nepal, and I got to about 17,500 feet. 
And although I'm not being a mountaineer, it was incredibly exhausting just trying to put one foot you know, in front of the other. Uh, so this is, in some cases, especially if you're trying to occupy the high ground, you really actually are literally very high up. That said, uh, you know, in the area south of Pongo Lake, a lot of attention is focused on what's known as the Sponger Gap. And this is, was a scene of intense fighting in October, November of 1962. It's at slightly lower elevation. The high ground that India has occupied in some ways is meant to dominate the Chinese positions or, or, or the routes that Chinese forces might take through uh, this, this gap. Um, what this means is, and the second point I want to make, excuse me, is that over the last, you know, really since 1962, but especially in the last two to three decades, China and India, both in different ways, have tried to really improve uh, infrastructure in these areas, primarily in terms of all other roads that they could use, uh, and not just in the summer months or the campaigning season in the Himalayas, but actually all year round. Um, and so I think what this means is that the campaigning season itself really has until about mid-November. So we have, I think, two months that could that are still quite dangerous. I think when winter comes, uh, it will certainly uh, make uh, large-scale uh, uh, military operations much more difficult for both sides to conclude. And so I think the, the speculation now is that if there is no major fighting between now and, say, mid-November, that you'll see both sides kind of consolidate their positions, uh, try to keep what they've uh, taken or, or, or areas that they've occupied in the last few months, and then uh, fortify them to, to the best of their ability, such that when spring of 2021 rolls around, uh, we'll more or less be returning to the situation as it was uh, before winter came. Oh, well, that's a comforting thought. Um, okay, so but I want to come back to this bigger question, right? Because you keep mentioning the, the war in the early 1960s. Um, and, you know, obviously not much has happened kind of since that time, you know, small scale violence. So I'm a little confused about why this is getting out of hand right now. It seems like really the last thing either side needs is a conflict during coronavirus, frankly, a conflict at all, particularly over a fairly, um, a fairly small section, uh, as you put it, sort of of the overall disputed border territories. So why is this happening now? So I think there are a bunch of reasons, and I can focus a little bit more on the China side, since I know that's uh, what you'd like to, to talk about. But the first reason I think applies to both, and it goes back to what I mentioned a minute ago, which is namely uh, greatly enhanced border infrastructure. And so uh, these areas were really remote. And in the 1960s, they were hard to access. You literally had to walk into many of them. You couldn't drive in. Um, and now, of course, uh, in many of these areas, they're all weather roads on both sides. India, in early 2019, completed what's known as the DSDBO road, which basically connects um, or runs along more or less most of the Western sector from uh, an airfield called Dalitbek Oldi up, up near the tri-junction with Pakistan, all the way down to near uh, the Pongal Lake. And that's greatly facil facilitated India's movements uh, across or laterally along the line of actual control. And China, for its part, has also been uh, trying to build uh, more roads and infrastructure. What this means, though, is that in the last decade, especially in the last five years, the ability of both sides to patrol areas where they a dispute, uh, the location of the line of actual control has increased. And so in some ways, uh, the dispute has been given a new lease on life, paradoxically enough, because the efforts sort of to improve border area infrastructure have actually uh, brought to the surface um, many areas of disagreement that were basically dormant after 1962. And this is one reason why I think the confidence building measures from the early 1990s are not 
really necessarily that well suited to the current situation anymore because uh, they were re- so they were agreed upon at a time when both sides didn't really frequently come into contact with each other. In a very general level, you have sort of infrastructure, and China here has had the upper hand. India has been catching up, but the net result has been uh, both sides are holding more frequently than ever before. And you actually see this quite frequently referred to now in Indian press reports of what's happening on the border. I think China, for its part, has its own sort of motivations and concerns. Um, and, and there are a couple that, that, that I'd list. Uh, first, we'll just start with uh, Xi Jinping and the more strident approach to sovereignty uh, that uh, he has uh, pushed China to pursue under his uh, leadership of, of the Chinese Communist Party and, and China more generally. Um, we see this in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, right? All of China's remaining territorial disputes have certainly only become uh, sort of more uh, tense uh, under Xi Jinping, right? Now, thankfully, most of China's territorial disputes were settled in previous periods, but those disputes that remain, especially the maritime ones, Taiwan, India, uh, really uh, are, are, are a series of uh, hotspots or friction points around China's periphery. Uh, then you have 2017, and this is when uh, India uh, sent forces uh, into what it viewed to be Bhutanese territory, what China viewed to be Chinese territory, basically at the tri-junction of India, Bhutan, and China to stop China from building a road as part of the infrastructure drive that we talked a minute ago about. I think this really took China by surprise. Um, and uh, it took China by surprise in part because India moved forces into an area that it didn't even claim to be Indian. It was sort of acting on Bhutan's behalf uh, to help uh, protect uh, sort of a, a de facto sort of client state of Bhutan. Um, and although there was a lull in 2018, if, if we look at um, sort of Indian reports of Chinese transgressions of the line of actual control, so incidents when uh, China crosses what in, India used to be the line of actual control, not actually crossing necessarily beyond what China used to be the line of actual control, they really have increased in the last two years, and especially in the Western sector. Uh, which is not necessarily surprising because this is uh, a one area where uh, um, I think India has made a big effort to improve its position and it's trying to sort of, sort of to counteract China's dominant position there. Uh, so, But I think the takeaway from 2017 and the standoff over Doklam is that China didn't really want to be surprised again. Um, fast forward to the summer of 2019. I know this is probably more information than you want, but uh, it's complicated, so we have to go through everything. Uh, uh, there was a move in India to uh, bifurcate uh, the state of Jammu and Kashmir into two uh, federally administered union territories. One of these was Ladakh. And uh, in October, uh, when it was late, or perhaps it was early November, I can't quite remember, India then published a new map of this a new union territory of Ladakh. And of course, it showed the entire Western sector as being part of India, even though uh, this is all occupied by China. It, um, and I think from China's point of view, it's uh, really seen as hardening uh, kind of India's position in, in the dispute, especially in the context of improved infrastructure. Uh, a few months before this map was released, uh, the Home Minister, Amit Shah, uh, made a very uh, strong comments in the Indian Parliament about uh, sort of retaking um, uh, Ladakh and, and being willing to die for it and everything else. And so uh, whether or not this was intended to be sort of uh, as a signal to China, China viewed it as a sort of increased uh, sort of a commitment of, of India's um, resolve to to sort of defend its claims in the dispute, and then fast forward to the sort of the, the spring of 2020. I, I think um, you know, some of the details here are, are a little fuzzy. It looks like China uh, decided 
uh, to move into some of these areas, but also that uh, India had not at least expeditiously mounted kind of counter patrols. And thus China found itself uh, with the ability to sort of push westward in several locations uh, up to what it views to be the line of actual control. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, so that is a lot of detail. Um, but it, it so it sounds like the situation that we're in basically is sort of increasingly hardening positions on either side, rising tensions. And, you know, anyone that's sort of studied military history knows that that is not a great place to be in. Um, I'm interested in talking a little more about the Chinese side of this. Um, so you, you argued um, in a foreign affairs article a couple of months back um, that this conflict has to do on the Chinese side um, a lot with their growing obsession with sovereignty. Um, you know, and you talk about various places in East Asia, not just um, this border dispute in particular. And so I wondered if I could ask you to expand a little on that, you know, talk about why is sovereignty suddenly so important um, to Xi Jinping, to the Chinese Communist Party? How is it informing their foreign policy today? Sure, that's a great question. Although I do want to note, I did not choose the title for my foreign <laughs> affairs article. Um, <laughs> and I probably would not have chosen that particular title. Because uh, the point I was trying to make uh, was that uh, one I already mentioned to you, namely, right, that just overall, uh, Xi Jinping has adopted, uh, or China under Xi Jinping has adopted a much more strident approach to sovereignty. And you know, this goes all the way back to you know, early March of 2013, when she gives a speech uh, talking about uh, the China dream and links kind of the defense of, uh, of Chinese sovereignty and territory uh, with, the, with achieving the China dream, right? So if the China dream is this very large overarching very large and overarching kind of framework for China's diplomacy, um, even if it's mostly internally oriented, it really did uh, elevate uh, the importance of sovereignty. I think fast forward to, uh, and so as I mentioned, right, you've, you've seen China pushing in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea in particular, right, both of these under Xi Jinping's watch, you know, the the, the Coast Guard patrols around the Senkapu Islands, the, the oil rig in the South China Sea, land reclamation, militarization of the features, and so forth. Um, and then in the context of this, of course, you also have a, a growing number of incidents uh, along the China-India border in 2013 and 2014, in addition to what we talked about a moment ago in terms of 2017. In the context of the um, sort of backlash against China, in the spring of 2020 with uh, the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, I think sovereignty became sort of even more important for China. I think at that time when a, a lot of this sort of, this new phase of assertive, assertiveness happened, China felt like it was on its back foot. Uh, relations with the United States were you know, plummeting, uh, the economy was in trouble. And I think at this point, uh, China's leaders concluded they certainly could not afford to look uh, weak on sovereignty issues, both for their domestic audiences as well as for international audiences. And so I think uh, this um, sort of just made sort of defending uh, sort of Chinese sovereignty claims even more important than they already were. I think this helps us uh, better understand why we've seen so much uh, assertiveness in the spring of uh, 2020. So a lot of your broader work um, is on kind of 
defense policies, threat perceptions. Um, you know, your book, I think it was last year your book came out, mm-hmm. um, and it was about why China has sort of reoriented its defense policies over over the decades. And so what we've been talking about, obviously, is a kind of a change in, in strategy, a change in approach to the world. I'm wondering if that has been matched on the Chinese side by change in defense policies, change in posture um, approach to the region. So I think China's defense posture today uh, bears uh, many important elements of continuity with a modernization plan that was really put in place in 1999 after the bombing of uh, the Chinese embassy in Kosovo, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Kosovo as part of uh, the Kosovo Air War. Um, And this is when basically a recapitalization of uh, the PLA overall as an organization was approved. Uh, uh, by the Chinese leadership, and and now we're you know, basically two decades later, right? We're seeing the fruits of this modernization from China's point of view in terms of the really impressive uh, number of uh, new and modern platforms that have been inducted into uh, the Chinese Air Force, uh, the Navy, and uh, the Ground Force. Um, China's the reason why I want to say there's a lot of continuity, though, is that this modernization effort was part of a strategy to help the PLA to prevail in what are described as local wars, or in Chinese, Zhubu Zhanzheng. And uh, these basically refers to conflicts on China's periphery where sovereignty is disputed for the most part. One could also imagine perhaps a local war on the Korean Peninsula in the case of kind of a, a collapse of the North, but primarily, you know, sort of the pacing threat here for China was Taiwan, South China Sea and East East China Sea became more important. But of course, India was uh, never forgotten because it is really an important part of kind of China's strategic uh, periphery. And so in this sense, I I still think you see uh, more continuity in China's approach, but but basically China's just in a much more capable position to sort of be able to prevail in these conflicts than it was uh, when it started. And if, and if this is true, then of course, it would also explain in part China's assertiveness because it believes that it can certainly um, sort of uh, brandish force uh, in a deterrent way, perhaps much more uh, readily or easily than before, because it it can be confident necessarily that um, it might be able to deter uh, escalation, especially from uh, smaller and uh, weaker countries. Of course, with India, right, th- this has probably backfired. I think India now has decided it's time to stand up to China uh, before China gets too strong. And and if you sort of read the Indian press and Indian accounts of what's going on, I, you, you really get a sense that India, uh, in some ways, um, or, or at least within the commentary in India, there's sort of a desire to give China a bloody nose, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to characterize the official Indian position in that way. I think it's much more sort of nuanced and moderate, and I wouldn't even necessarily characterize all of the commentary that way, but certainly you can read a lot of these commentaries like, oh yeah, you know, uh, in, in the end of August when we seize the commanding heights, we got revenge and, um, you know, so on and so forth, right? And so, um, but 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 overall, right, this military strategy still is focused on uh, East Asia. It's not a global strategy. Uh, and I think it will take some time before it would ever become a global strategy. Taiwan is the pacing threat. Dealing with the United States uh, in the region, in a, in a Taiwan conflict in particular, is, is a key part of that. And this paradoxically suggests that China may ne- not necessarily want to push much harder on the border with India, because of course, uh, it doesn't want to find itself in a two-front sort of conflict situation. And even though, you know, sort of 
the East Asian, uh, Western Pacific elements uh, or contingencies for China are primarily air and naval campaigns, and and the West or India is primarily a sort of a ground force campaign. Nevertheless, Chinese writing or Chinese uh, military writings contain or focus a lot on basically this need to prevent a kind of two front war situation and and be able to basically control conflict in one area. Uh, uh, that may be less important, like India, to be able to focus on the most important area, which, of course, still, uh, is Taiwan today. You know, that's a, a really interesting point you made a few minutes ago that I, I think we don't hear repeated enough in some of the conversation about sort of China and Washington, um, which is that China is not in nearly as good a strategic position as the United States is, just from a geographical point of view, from a, from a geostrategic point of view. You know, China has multiple fronts that it still has to consider when it's actually building up its defense capabilities, when it's considering whether it could mount conflicts. You know, it really does have to bear in mind mm -hmm. that it's got sort of a variety variety of, of threats in, in different areas. Um, and I guess, so kind of related to that, there's been a, a lot of conversation in Washington about this um, this notion of the quad, right? That the, the US would form some kind of larger alliance with, I think right now it's what Australia, Japan, and India is the, is the quad. But, but the idea that the US might start to um, align more forcefully with these other countries that are themselves aligning against China. And I would just love to get your thoughts on, on that. I hear a variety of opinions on whether it's plausible or not. Well, I think it depends, you know, or how to answer that question, it really depends on what you mean by the quad, right? Would, would this become like a an Indo-Pacific NATO? It's like, of course not, right? That, that, that like, like, that would just be far-fetched. And I, I can't see India or Japan really wanting to sign up to that, even though they have real concerns with China and those real concerns with China uh, overlap with American concerns. Um, so I, I think what you are certainly seeing, though, is, is China uh, in the last uh, eight to 10 years has in various ways really needled uh, some of its important neighbors to include Japan over the Senkaku Islands, but also other maritime related issues. India on the border, um, despite uh, efforts by Modi and Xi Jinping at Wuhan uh, in 2018 to um, uh, overcome that. And then. Uh, of course, Australia, and you know, the Australian is less of a direct, perhaps sort of uh, military threat, but certainly uh, this this view that uh, China is unduly meddling in Australian society uh, at really at, at the expense in a very fundamental way of sort of Australian autonomy. And so, China is bringing these countries together. Um, and that much is true. What what that will mean in practice in terms of coordinated action, and especially in terms of coordinated military action, will probably uh, fall far short of anything we might view as an alliance, right? So it's more of a four-sided marriage of convenience, uh, which is not uncommon in international politics. Right? When you share a common threat, states are going to get together and think about how they uh, can pursue it. But, but I guess I am slightly, or I just be cautious with respect to how uh, quickly it will develop and how sort of deep the security cooperation will be because you know, th these are four different countries dispersed over a pretty wide geographic area. And although it's very clear that that they share uh, a common concerns uh, with China and its rise, uh, what that means in practice in terms of some kind of a de facto alignment or alliance, I think remains to be seen. Oh, that's really interesting. So um, we are kind of running out of time, but just before we go, I want to bring it back to the, the China-India question and just ask you, you know, what do you think we're going to see over the next couple of months, over the next couple of years? I know you mentioned that if we don't see much more movement before winter, 
we might just start back up in the spring. Um, but I guess um, how concerned should we be that this is going to spiral out of control in some way? Well, I think the the probability of escalation increased pretty significantly in the last two weeks um, because the move that India made uh, was significant um, and it has brought forces uh, into close proximity with each other when uh, even though it was not complete, there had certainly been some disengagement after June. Uh, that being said, I think uh, China has clearly signaled it does not want to escalate further. It, 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 it sent these signals in the immediate aftermath of, of the violence in June, but also more recently at the foreign minister's meeting in, uh, I think it was Moscow, uh, where uh, China has tried to sort of say, say uh, in multiple times, even before that meeting, uh, or, or you've seen this in Chinese statements over the summer, that they, that they don't want to see the dispute harming the broader relationship with India. So I think China realizes uh, that, that even if they've already nudged India closer to the U.S., that they could probably push it even even uh, closer, which would ultimately come at their sort of long-term expense. And so um, at the political level, you do have, I think, this desire from China not to escalate further, uh, but it doesn't translate necessarily into a, a, a unilateral disengagement on the border either, right? And so uh, I think the real worry is uh, that the movement versus on the ground uh, could create a, a situation or a crisis or a clash that becomes much harder to control at the political level. But but if one starts at the political level with respect to China, uh, one does not see signs that China is going to uh, try to escalate further and make any quick gains before uh, winter sets in. Um, winter may be a proverbial cooling off period, and uh, that may then allow both sides to kind of reconsider what they want to do in the spring when the ice melts. India's position uh, is that China has to, or India's position is, is that they want the status quo ante of April 2020 to be restored. Um, and one view for why India made this move at the end of August was basically to get some leverage over China such that you could now have a much more meaningful disengagement because China, because presumably uh, in exchange for China vacating um, the areas that uh, it uh, moved into after April 2020, India would also vacate uh, these areas. And um, then you would kind of have a deal that could be made, right? Whereas up until this point, India has kind of been asking China to move back and China's hasn't had a, a strong reason to uh, other than wanting to maintain, you know, or to prevent... A, a complete deterioration of ties with India. And so perhaps the winter uh, when it really one can't do much on the, on the ground provides an opportunity to figure out what this deal might look like uh, without also at the same time having to worry about uh, potential for escalation. But at the moment, I mean, if these reports coming out of India are accurate, right? If you're only a couple hundred meters apart, um, you're well armed, you're firing warning shots, right? This is a situation that really does uh, harken back to the summer of 1962, um, when basically you had this slow moving but steady escalation with increasing deployments by both sides uh, that ultimately uh, led to a few small firefights and then a large scale war in October. Well, certainly something we're going to keep a close eye on over the next couple of months. So thank you so much for joining us today, Taylor. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks as always to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to you all at home for listening. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. Mm -hmm.